Love is not enough. It takes so much more. It takes understanding, it takes forgiveness. But even understanding and forgiveness needs something. They need what love needs too. Love always needs the truth. Without the truth, even love doesn't work. So let's talk about what that means in these moments. Let's talk about what it would be like if there was a, a, level, in, a level of truth in your life that has eluded your grasp, or a level of truth in your life that would change the way you order your days. What are the lies at the altar? Let me tell you a story. It was a beautiful day for a wedding. The church was packed with happy friends and family. The bride was stunning in an ivory satin wedding dress. The groom elegant in a fitted black tuxedo. The wedding party circled them in a color-coordinated cloud of taffeta and tails. As the couple stood before the silver-haired minister, they gazed deeply into each other's eyes. Then they each spoke the vows they had written themselves. You will be my best friend, she pledged. Except for Marcia, who will always be my very, very best friend. And my German shepherd, Spike, who will sleep at the foot of our bed and sometimes get into bed with us. I promise to take care of you and want only what's good for you, he replied, as long as it works for me and doesn't involve frequent visits to your family. I'll treasure you for who you are, she said. But once we're married, I'll expect you to drink less, work harder, start showing an interest in the arts, and shave off that beard. What is mine will be yours, he responded. Except for the money you don't know about and the cash, I'll sock away in a private account just in case things don't work out. I promise to love you unconditionally, she said, until you do something I find intolerable, to forgive and forget, although you know I come from a family of championship grudge holders, and to never go to sleep angry, although I may have to stay awake all night fuming. I'll adore you forever in body and soul, he said, as long as you keep that gorgeous figure. I promise to cherish you every day for as long as we both shall live, she answered, her eyes welling with joyous tears, for as long as I can stand to put up with you. They made promises they could not keep and said flowery words they did not fully understand or believe, hoping that the magical aura of their lavish wedding would carry them through their lives and make everything okay. They were lying at the altar, lying down on the job of forging true partnerships, making up stories that they hoped would someday come true. What are the lies at the altar? You know, it all started out in Genesis. It all started out so good. Everything was good. And God made men and God made women. And it was good. And God said, here, 
I'm giving you a planet, a whole planet. Take care of it. Be in it fully. Invest everything you have in what I have given you. And then you know the story. What was so good went so very, very bad so quickly. And Genesis 3.16 tells the rest of the story that, that reverberates down through thousands and thousands of years. He said to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. That's what God said. Your desire will be for your husband. Now that everything is falling apart, your desire will be for him. But if you go back and look at it, it's not a romantic desire. It's not a desire where the heart is pounding and the emotions are fluttering. It's a desire of, of ambush. It's lying in wait. You will lie in wait for your husband to bring him down when he's not looking. You will take him down because you will get what you want now. And then he says, and he, this husband that you have, he shall rule over you. His, his penchant will be to have dominion and power. He will want to be the king of the home, and he will rule over you because that's what is flowing through his heart now. And so you will want to take him down, and he will want to power up. And it's not going to be happily ever after anymore. And so when... When you see something like this story, it's much more than a backyard. It's a garden. It's a garden called Eden where there was once great promise, where there was once great hope and joy. But now it is spinning out of control. And so when, when the Apostle Paul starts to write about this in the beginnings of something that's new, something that's called the church. When he starts writing to first century men and women, he looks back to that moment, but he announces a new moment. He says in Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, don't ask the question anymore. Who's in charge? Don't try to take somebody down in ambush. Don't try to, to power up over your, your wife. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is new. This is a concept that was rooted and grounded in a garden long ago, but it got lost along the way. Who's in charge? God's in charge. And as you submit to God, then that flows into how you submit to each other, how you care for each other, how you, how you love each other. And then in the next verse it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. But it really doesn't, doesn't say that. It just says, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. Well, wives what? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if we're all going to do this, it's got to be both sides of the equation. Wives to your husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And there's no language there of control. There's no language there of 
CEO authority or big kahuna is stuff. It's, it's just in the Garden of, of Eden, the woman was taken out of the man. He was the beginning of her. It really is the language of source beginning. So the husband was the source beginning of the wife as Christ is the source beginning of the church. He announced it. His body of which he is the Savior. What does a Savior do? Savior gives himself. Submits. Read Philippians chapter 2 to find out what that's about. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And as the husbands cheer in the background, all of a sudden they keep reading, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up. Gave everything. Gave it all. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And as if that wasn't enough, Paul just keeps developing that thought for the men. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He says, let me make this very, very clear. You know how you take care of yourself? That's the same thing I'm talking about here. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, he goes right back to Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh together on the same page. One heart, one mind, working in sync, working in tandem for the purposes of God in the world. This is why God revealed himself through male and female. This is a profound mystery, Paul says. You will never totally figure this all out. You won't get all the answers. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must Respect her husband. Love is not enough. It takes submission. It takes sacrifice. It takes understanding the purposes of God from the very beginning. Solomon wrote about this in his wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless. A miserable business. He's alone. It's, remember when the man was alone? After everything was good, in Genesis it said, the man was alone. This is not good. It was not good for the man to be alone. Aloneness is difficult. It's hard sometimes. It's lonely. And this man is alone, and he is lonely. So Solomon says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. They work together. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they, keep, they will keep warm, but how can 
one keep warm alone. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken, or a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And so the idea comes in there that it's not just, it's not just two, it's not just the love of two. The love of two is not enough. It takes God weaving his own love, God weaving his own purposes of grace into the lives of two people, and then you have something strong. You have a bond that cannot be broken, that cannot be torn apart. Even though pressures come and stresses come, there is a power greater than yourselves. I look at that passage and, you know, the two lie down together, they keep warm. Whenever it's, whenever it's cold like it is today, I have two doggy beds in the back seat of my car and Bodie sits in one and Wilson sits in the other. Whenever it's cold like it is today, I look in the back seat, they're both in one bed. And they're like together because it's warmer together. Not too long ago, I actually fell down. It was actually like a year and a half ago before I started to go to the gym. And I fell down inside of a closet when I was trying to go through a crawl space where only a lollipop kid should have gone through. And, and you can tell I'm not the size of a lollipop kid at all. And, and, and so I was trying to, to empty out some kind of, a, I don't know, a dehumidifier. Uh, I slipped and fell, and I was on my back in the closet, and I couldn't get up from the position I was in. And I'm laying there, and I thought, well, this is it now. If nobody finds me here, it's all over. I will die in a closet amongst the shoes, amongst the slippers, with all the odds and ends that you keep in a closet. That, you know, I'm just there. And, and I was alone, and there was no one to help me. And that's why it says, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But there was nobody there. Love is not enough. It takes more. So Paul takes this further in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, let me tell you why love is not enough, why it takes so much more. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I grew up, when I became a man, when I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. King James, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. It's still a mystery, but I'm moving toward a place where I will know all things someday. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The message has it this way. I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut 
doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of the three is love. The greatest is love. The best is love. But love is not enough. Love needs you to live in truth. In her book, Lies at the Altar, the truth about great marriages, Dr. Robin Smith says this very clearly and very specifically. Truth is the secret ingredient to marriage. Truth is what makes it really work. It's what pulls it all together. And she talks about the ten lies that people tell each other at the altar. The ten lies at the altar. Lie number one. If the package is beautifully wrapped, its contents will be fabulous. This is, in our culture, the the attraction myth. The truth is the packaging doesn't tell you anything about what's inside. The Bible talks about this all the time, various places. It it talks about how, especially in 1 Peter, it, it talks about women, and it says, let your beauty be the inner beauty, the inner person of the heart. Let that be your beauty, not just what's on the outside, not what you can put on or not how you can make yourself look good. It's a wonderful thing to be beautiful and to look beautiful, but the Bible says you have to go past that. In Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. There's this this differentiation. The packaging doesn't tell you anything about what's inside, and that's where the person really is. Second lie is the past is over. The truth is the past is driving you to the chapel. The past is driving you to the church. And what I mean by that is you spent years and years and years. You can't quantify the number of hours you spent being taught values and principles and laws about life in your family. Decades went by and you learned everything about life from little gestures and little facial expressions to what you do when somebody does something against you, to how you handle your money, to what you do with your vacation and with your friends. You learned all that stuff. And now that just drove you down the aisle. It's right there with you. You didn't leave that behind. It's there. And if you don't work to understand that and understand how that impacts a new relationship, then that could take that relationship down someday. The past drives you to your wedding. What are you going to do about that? The third lie is anything is better than being alone. The truth is Being alone and free is better than being together and controlled. Lie number four, you have to go along to get along. The truth is, in a great marriage, you can ask for what you need without fear of rejection. Ask for what you need. You know what I need right now? I need 
towels. I have two man-sized towels, and I can barely, like, you know, keep one of them washed, and, well, usually somebody else takes care of that part of it. But, you know, try to keep them, the, the flow of them, sometimes they don't. You know, my wife has 42 towels to her name, and I got two. I am humbly, this morning, with witnesses, asking for at least two more towels to come into my life, maybe as a late Valentine's Day gift. They could come up. They could show up sometime really soon. Because right now, I have no clean towels at home. They're both used. Lie number five. It's important to be right. The truth is, it's more important to relate authentically. You know, so many marriages, one person's got to be right, got to be right, got to be right, got to be right. It's more about, but just say how you feel. Say in this moment, why do you think that? Or why do you want that? Or how did you analyze that in that way? Help me to to follow your your line of of reasoning. To, To relate authentically is the truth. Not that somebody always powers up and and rams their agenda through. Line number six. You can learn to live with compromises that trouble your soul and make you suffer and call it love. The truth is suffering is not love. Now there's two kinds of suffering, really. There's suffering that comes because things happen, somebody gets ill or sick or there's some kind of economic downturn, 90 degrees right turn, and, and, and your mind is reeling and you're trying to figure things out. Something takes place that you weren't expecting and there's pain and there's heartache or whatever. And, and that suffering is the kind of suffering the Bible is talking about when it, when it teaches that you can, you can engage that and God will walk with you through that and you can grow with that. And the other kind of suffering that's happening here is that suffering is not love. That's when there's constant abuse. That's when there's constant application of things that are not healthy, are not holy. And you can't define something as holy that isn't healthy. And and so when suffering is not love, that's the truth, and you've got to decide to face it and do something about it because nobody deserves to live under abuse, whether that's emotional and or physical. Line number seven is it's you and me against the world. The truth is you can't have a great marriage if you live in a bunker. Line number eight is if you believe in the same God, you'll share the same values. And this is one of the the big ones in the church, the big ones in Christianity. The truth is values are what you live, not what you believe or not just what you say you believe. Just because you believe in the same understanding of Christianity doesn't mean you're living out the requirements of the kingdom of God together. The ninth lie is marriage magically changes people for the better. The truth is the person at the altar will be the person at the breakfast table. And lie number 10 is marriage is an automatic ticket to self-esteem. The truth is you have to be whole before you can be joined. Marriage is not, has never been, can't be a 50 50 proposition. It's not even 
proposition. Marriage is only, can only work when it's a 200% proposition. It's here's my 100% of everything that I am, and, and I am still learning and growing, but this is all of me, and I own all of me. And here I am, and this is all of me, and I own all of me too, and I'm still learning and growing, and now you've got 200%. And that's what it takes 200% all the time to make marriage work. Love isn't enough. So yesterday was Valentine's Day. And uh, did you know that everybody in Virginia Beach goes out to dinner for Valentine's Day? Who went out to dinner for Valentine's Day? I mean, lots of you went out to dinner. Well, all the restaurants were full. They were packed. I tried to get in. A dozen places. I couldn't get in anywhere. I called this one place, one of my favorite places, and they said, we are booked from 2 p.m. all the way on through. I said, you know, how about I'll just sit on the floor. They said, the floor is booked. <laughs> it's all booked. I called another place, one of my favorite places. I said, is there any chance, like a chance way out in left field that I could get in? The woman was mad at me for asking. I could feel the disdain in her voice. You waited till Valentine's Day morning to call? What kind of a person are you? I could just feel it. So I called one final place. I said, hoping beyond hope, is there any way? And they said, well, we think we could squeeze you in right at the end of the bar area. I said, I will take it. And so uh, our friend, our good friend, is here from Chicago. He was a gentleman who was in the drama this morning. And so Gail and I were going to take him with us and, and celebrate Valentine's Day together with our friend. And, uh, and then at the last minute, Gail says, I can't go. So now Paul and I are having Valentine's Day together. <laughs> at the end of a bar. <laughs> this is not looking good. I'm just praying none of you are there. And then Michael Simone at the end of the bar with a guy with a mustache and looks. So, so the, the restaurant owner, who I know well, she comes over and I say, well, we think Gail's coming and we're hoping that she comes. And 30 minutes goes by, she comes over and, and we say, well, she's not coming. She says, it's okay, she goes. Love is love. You have a friend, love is love. And I'm thinking, no. No, 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 you know, you're not getting this right here. You know, and, and I felt like praying, and I felt like the guy in the, in the moon, Moonstruck clip to get down on my knees right there and just sort of work my way out of, the, out of the restaurant. You have to be whole before you can be joined. It's the only way it works, 200%. So you have three choices. Here are your three choices. You can just stay stuck right where you are. That's a choice. You can... Stay in what one of the Christian authors calls the crazy cycle. And just go round and round and round the same stuff all the time. Second, you can look outside of your marriage to get your fantasy fixed, which, also, which always leads to more pain, drama, and trauma, which is what that Fifty Shades of Purple movie is all about. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Chartreuse, Fifty Shades of lime green, whatever it is. And if you sat in a seat here today, you've been fitted with an automatic tracking device, I will know if you see the movie. 
It'll light up. There's this big chart in my office. All the lights are going to light up. Your name is going to be like, your picture even is like, you know, I have cameras in all the theaters everywhere. The third choice is choose to find out what can happen when you live in truth. It's scary, but it's good. Because when you get beyond the scary, it starts to get good really fast. And you begin to understand what God started in a garden long ago. Truth is a requirement for love. Love is not enough. Truth is a requirement for love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love rejoices with the truth. And as it also states clearly there, when I was a child, I thought this way and, and I reasoned this way. And, 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 he, and he says with great wisdom, I had to put all that behind me. I promised to show up as a grown up is a colloquial way to put it. I promise to show up as a grown-up. I promise to want to live with the truth and rejoice with the truth. There's a predictable track of marriage. Romance, power struggles, and choosing to love. Romance is that superficial stage. It's, it's a great stage. It's a good stage. You, you have to have it. It's what people talk about when they talk about falling in love, falling in love, and there's that moment across a crowded room, and you know, and it's all those kinds of things. You know, and then at, at the altar, you start to tell those, those lies. You really have a little agenda that you have in your back pocket, and, uh, and so you try to figure out who's really in control here, who really controls the money, who really controls what we do, and when we do it, when we have vacations, and how much we spend on vacations, and, and, and who visits who, when, where, why, how, and the holidays, and, and how do we bring up kids, and, and there's these lots of power struggles that you, you have to figure out, and you have to do that. You have to do it based upon the truth, and based upon patience, and understanding, and forgiveness, and grace, and then when you work through all that stuff, there is choosing to love. Choosing to love. It's when you finally realize that, that love at its highest level is a choice. It's a way you decide to live. It's a way you decide to figure out everything that could easily derail you, but you're not going to allow it to derail you. You're going to apply love in generous portions. One of the best marriage researchers in America, his name is John Gottman, wrote a book called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, and he said it this way. If there is one lesson I have learned from my years of research, and he's got decades of research on marriage, from my years of research, is that a lasting marriage results from a couple's ability to resolve the conflicts that are inevitable in any relationship. We grow in our relationships by reconciling our differences. That's how we become more loving people and truly experience the fruits of marriage. I have a diagram, and it shows a point of conflict between a husband and a wife, and it's right there in the center. It's, it's a clash. It's a crash. It's, it's a head-butting thing. And then if you 
start to peel back the layers of it on either side with the husband and the wife. There's a hope and a wish. There's a hope and a wish. And so if you can work through the conflict and the headbutting, and you can get back to the hope and the wish, you can begin to understand why truth and love will bring hope and healing. In the drama, they both have a hope and a wish. He's not ready to get there. She's a little closer, but there's still some, some fuzziness to it. But if they can both get to the hope and the wish, they can live in the same house together. They can be with each other. They can be mother and father to their children together because the hope and the wish is ordered by truth and love. How do you know if, if you're going to be able to do that? Well, there's a, there's a paradigm about how you resolve conflicts in marriage. And there's only three styles when you reduce it all down. There's the good, the bad, and the volatile. The good is called by Dr. Gottman the validating style of resolving marriage conflicts. This is what I call a win-win. You work toward a win-win, and it brings about a happy result. You're both happy because you, you talked it out, you figured it out, you worked on it, you got to a point where you could both agree, and in the win-win, you have honored each other. And in honoring each other, there's a, a natural happiness that comes from that. And you can decide that you want to have that style if you have one of the other styles this morning. The good style, the validating style. The bad style is the avoiding style. We're just not going to talk about it. Every time we talk about it, we just get further you know, confused and then we start to get upset. So we've learned if we just avoid talking about the conflict stuff, that everything kind of stays okay. Not really. The score is always zero, zero. Nobody really wins. And the result is usually loneliness because you're polarized and you're living in two different lives, two different corners of life. The volatile is evidenced by fighting, arguing. It's a winner and a loser. Somebody wins, somebody loses. And it's always frustrating. It's more frustrating for the loser if the loser is always losing. But the frustration eats away at the very foundation of the marriage to a point where you're just, you're just existing. And you know that when the next fight comes up, you'll be in it. You'll go in, you know, gloves on, no holds barred, winner, loser, winner takes all. But do you really want to figure everything out in a ring? Do you really want to figure everything out in the red zone? I don't think so. Choose the good. Choose the validating. How can both of us win? How can we figure this out for the good? How can we get to a place where this is honoring each other for everything we are and everything that God wants us to be? I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love is not enough because you have to tell the truth. Love is not enough because you have to show up. Love is not enough because it's got to be 
200% or even more than that. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for a morning when we can tell the truth. Thank you for a morning when we can really look at the heart of marriage, when we can understand that, that love isn't enough and understand why it isn't enough. Father, take us into these final moments. Take us into this, this moment that can touch the very heart of our marriages, Father. Take us there now by the power of your love and the power of your grace. Jesus, you said the truth will set us free. So, Father, begin the work of setting us free now. For we ask this in your holy name. We ask this in Jesus' name.